you go out there with an agenda, I want to capture X or Y, you may get X or Y, but it's a pretty boring process. You, you go out there with a complete blank mind and allow the city to seduce you. You have to you have to allow the city to surprise you and seduce you, and you don't go out with an agenda and you come back with pictures that you didn't know you were going to get when you went out. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we, we are going to talk about some of the stuff that is just absolutely mesmerizing when, when it comes to photography. Uh, we're talking not only, but a good bit about photography at night, about noir, and we're going to talk about it with one of the really cool practitioners of this these days, Lynn Smith, photo media artist and tutor down just outside of Sydney, Australia, who has developed a, a genre called street noir. It, it is some of the stuff that I find I, myself lingering over all the time uh, when I'm looking at his work. Uh, for a long time, you know, before he got into photography, I mean, he was a copywriter, creative director and advertising, won all sorts of awards. And now as an artist, he's got Books and he's got exhibitions, and he's a fantastic, fantastic teacher and tutor. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing for me this evening, for you this morning? Pretty good, Scott. Uh, thanks for inviting me, and um, I hope you can uh, wrap your ears around my um, Aussie accent. <laughs> well, the, the accent is, is, is music to the American ear. How about that? So I hear, so I hear. Well, likewise, I mean, for us, it's like the Scots or the Irish. We haven't a clue what they're saying, but we love the sound of their voices. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping some of what I say gets through. <laughs> oh, man. Well, okay, let's just start with the origin story. You're working in advertising, you're working in that whole world, and you're doing really, really well. Was the camera in your hand already at that time, or was this something that sort of developed when you were doing all that? Well, I used to shoot at sort of weekends um, when I had some time. I mean, you work about 60 hours a week in advertising, so you don't get a lot lot of spare time. But, um, yeah, I started shooting probably in my early 20s, but just messing around, you know, going out with a camera, not really having any particular idea, shooting uh, whatever interested me. I worked in five countries. I worked in Singapore, Jakarta, Auckland, Sydney, Melbourne, New York, and so I was in new places every few years, and so that was interesting, you know, to, mm -hmm. to be able to depict some of the things in these new places. But um, it's only when I left advertising in the late 90s that I thought, okay, well, I was actually in the community sector for about five years working with uh, people with um, frail-aged, uh, people with intellectual disabilities, people with physical disabilities, and while, while that work is useful and it paid the rent, it was a bit mechanical and I felt like I was dying creatively. So I started to photograph seriously actually in that phase when I was a community okay. worker as, as a sort of counter to the, to the rather mundane, you know, showering old people, taking them shopping, um, mopping floors and so on, mm -hmm. uh, which, which you have to do as part of that job. So it was a kind of counter to, to the mundanity of community work, and, and then it just grew from there. And then you went back to school. 
Well, I, I never finished school, um, actually. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I you, you, got, you, got two, you got two master's degrees. Come on, man. And that was after the age of 65. <laughs> Seriously, I didn't finish school. I, I went to the last year of school, and then I went into advertising as a message boy. So I started at the bottom and then okay. worked my way through the industry. When I started taking photography seriously in the early 2000s, I saw a leaflet in a photo processing lab and it said, Master of Documentary Photography, apply now, Sydney University. So I thought, oh, why not? And uh, took my portfolio along and they accepted me. Uh, and, And part of the reason was to try and figure out where I sat in the art world because, you know, down here in Australia, you don't get a lot of, you don't get exposure to a lot of local, a lot of photography. There's not much exposure locally to photography. So you have to kind mm-hmm. of step outside the country to, metaphorically speaking, to find out where you are. Um, and that's why I did it, to find out where I, I didn't want to learn photography. I already taught myself how to take pictures. So I didn't go to university for that reason. It was to locate myself in the art world and figure out where I stood and where I ought to go. Okay. And was it documentary, just the program that was available, or did you already sort of say, I- I'm, this is the genre I want to go into? No, it was called it was called A Master of Documentary Photography. So there was about four, four mandatory subjects, including the history of image making mm-hmm. and a few others. And I didn't want to learn Photoshop, so I also did um, research methods in art practice as as a topic as well um then i did a research masters after that which which as you probably know is uh, where you don't really have lectures you just have a a topic that you choose a supervisor that you you get to work with and if the supervisor approves your idea then away you go and uh, so i did the masters fairly shortly after the uh, after the coursework uh, masters so mm-hmm. I finished. I finished the second masters. I think when I was about seventy two or seventy three or so. <laughs> a spring chicken. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, now, but th- this is one of the things that you know that, that really engages me. First, your research paper for, for the MFA was longing in the city: the emergence of street street noir. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've, you know, I've seen you talk about in, you know, online, I've read about you, this, this notion, not only of street noir, but of longing. So, so tell let's just focus on that one word for a minute. What do you mean by longing in the city? It's longing and the city, actually, right. the title. Right. Hmm. Yep. Um, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough one. I hadn't prepared for that. Um, <laughs> uh, longing in the city. Okay. Well, I think, uh, look. What I what I concluded in the degree, uh, um, and you have to you have to actually discover something in the course of it. You can't you know you can't execute your idea. They won't let you do that. The academics at Sydney University anyway. You have to start with some sort of notion, and then they expect you to develop and to, if necessary, stand against your original notion. And what I found was that, um, I know this is a long answer to your question, but um, no, you're good. B- bear with me. What I found was that was that the genre I was working in was really a combination of film noir and street photography. Um, and I found that there was an interaction between the two media, uh, which surprised me. Quite a few um, photographers were also film directors and vice versa. For example, Stanley Kubrick was a photographer before he became a director. 
There were mm-hmm. photographers in the 1930s that collaborated with film directors. For example, a guy called Ouija that uh, photographed crime victims on the streets. Yep. Um, he, he was the inspiration for a show called The Naked City. For example, uh, David Lynch is a great admirer of William Eggleston. In fact, some of the setups in Lynch movies are based exactly on Eggleston stills uh, that then move in the case of Lynch. Uh, so, I, did not, so I, I did not know that. Cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was a Lynch retrospective at the Brisbane Art Gallery and it, it included his movies plus his photographs plus his paintings. And, and I saw an interview with his cinematographer who said he didn't quite get Lynch until one day he sat around talking to him and he realised that Lynch was a painter who wanted his paintings to move. So so he became a film director. So, so the longing, I suppose, is that noir... Uh, nostalgic or sort of romantic thing that uh, that the city has, especially at night. And and the other thing about street photography in general, not necessarily related to night, is that there's this delicious feeling when you go out there with your camera that you own everything. You don't literally own it, of course, <laughs> but metaphorically you do. Yes. All, the, all the material in front of you is yours to play with. So it's quite um, a delightful thing. It's quite, it's quite, a, quite a luxurious feeling to realise that everything you're looking at is yours to play with, um, and and I suppose I suppose it isn't yours, and that could be the longing aspect of it. But you play with it <laughs> and you make pictures out of it. So 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 I suppose that's part of it. It isn't really yours at all. But um, it's like the potter with his clay, except 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 the potter has to acquire some physical clay. The photographer uses the world, the, the city, as his clay, but he doesn't have to acquire it. Uh, but he makes stuff with it. You you said something that, that has you know really changed um, you know in, in a provocative way the way that I look at my own street photography, the way that I look at other street photography. Um, and you talk about that you are attracted to both anxiety and beauty. Um, and, and the minute I read that word anxiety, I thought, exact, that's it. That, that's, that's the button um, that I didn't have a word for that, that really sometimes makes street photography pop, uh, this combination of anxiety and beauty. Tell me, tell me how you understand that and, and, and how this plays out in your work. Well, uh, the thing about photography is I actually, I actually don't understand it. I, I, I spend a lot of time. <laughs> seriously, I'm not not being not being smart. I uh-huh. actually don't. I don't understand what it really is, uh, and I've thought about it quite a lot. It's not the real world because the real world's constantly moving. Even a stone is changing uh, slowly, but it's changing. I mean, photography doesn't change once you've got the thing. Uh, captured in in your device, whether it's film or digital, it doesn't change. It's forever. So there's a sadness to that, you see. I think it was um, one of those um, uh, photography critics uh, who called photography a little death in the sense that once it's shot, it's gone forever. The thing that Mm -hmm. you shoot, that you've shot, Mm -hmm. is gone forever. So there's a kind of um, sadness there. Anxiety, I did a show in Canberra actually called uh, A Beautiful Anxiety. That was the title mm-hmm. of the show. And there's a, there's a um, little video of me up on YouTube uh, talking about that idea um, called A Beautiful Anxiety. I suppose it's, it's always, it's the, it's the unattainable, isn't it? It's the thing, that, it's the thing that's, that's gone forever. It's almost like 
when you look at a child, you see, you try and imagine the adult and the old person in this child, but you can't. Uh, you look at an old person and you try and imagine the child in them, but you can't. So there's that there's that anxiety associated with the whole life process, which is which is totally mysterious. You know, mm-hmm. we're here for a bit and then we're gone. And you know, I keep thinking too when when I'm out shooting. Well, not all the time, but sometimes of, of what Picasso said that the purpose of art is to defeat death, which he managed to do. I haven't managed to do yet, but I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping, I'm hoping some of my stuff. Look, I don't give a shit if people remember me or remember my name, but I'd like I'd like my work to go on after I'm after I'm gone, mm-hmm. uh, or some, at least some ideas I've talked about maybe to to assist photographers to, to develop their work or to open doors for them to, to new avenues of thinking or whatever. I'd, I'd like that. I'd like that to be my effect. I don't really care if anybody remembers who I am. Right. When you were talking about film influences, and, and this is, again, you know, some stuff that I saw online, you know, you did reference David Lynch and also Hitchcock and, and, and people like that. But you, you used four terms that, that I really found, you know, solid, really. Um, you, you said, you know, you wanted your pictures to be beautiful, troubling, unsettling, and not conclusive. The beautiful and, and, and the rest of it, but what do you mean by not conclusive? Look, I've got a new idea that I've put up on uh, online uh, with a little video about three minutes. Uh, I'm going back to why, uh, Scott, to answer your question as to why yep. and, then, and then to what. I think that photography has reached the stage that painting reached in the mid-1800s uh, with the emergence of the camera where um, if you're the mayor of New York and you want your picture up in the town hall and um, and I'm a painter and the guy next to me is a photographer, we both quote you uh, on on a portrait and the photographer quotes, you know, one sitting, 150 bucks, and the painter quotes five sittings, 2,000. Who are you going to choose? So mm-hmm. painters were confronted with the device that could that could render the real world more accurately and much faster than them. But instead of... Uh, packing up their kit and going home and sulking, they thought about about opportunities that existed and so they decided to paint how they felt about the world as opposed to what it looked like. And at the, at the same time when painters were confronted with that reality, there also emerged paint, paint in tubes because prior to that, painters had to, they were handcuffed to the studio it was too difficult. They had, the paint was available in pig's bladders and was difficult mm-hmm. to cart around and so on and so on. So so painters decided to paint what they felt about the world. Now, I think photographers are faced with a problem of three and a half billion smartphones, all of which take pictures, and they're taking them more and more accurately. It's almost impossible to take a bad picture now with today's smartphones. So, So everything you could conclude from that arithmetically, is being depicted. Three and a half billion people out there every day with this thing in their pocket, shooting pictures, putting them up on social media. You could conclude that everything's being depicted. So I think photographers, serious photographers have to say to themselves, okay, if everything's being depicted, what will I do? Why, why do I need to imitate the smartphone? I will, I will hint at, imply or infer I will create pictures that are open-ended, where the viewer has to contribute to meaning. That's what I meant by by mysterious. 
Okay, but you are doing street photography. So the, the, you're not doing intentional camera movement. You're not doing, you know, blur, blur, intentional blur. What What is open-ended about the shot of an alleyway? Well, I don't use the term street photography because nobody values it. I never use it in any of my communications. Urban's as close as I get in terms of a description. Okay. Um, Everybody loves street photography, but nobody values it. So I don't. I don't use the term at all. <laughs> no, no. Look. Look. The thing is that that I'm not against conceptual photography. I, I mm-hmm. really like. I really like it. I like the work of Jeff Wall and uh, and um, those people working in that in that area. But uh, it doesn't appeal to me. I th- I think the fun and the excitement is to be able to drag mysteries out of the real world. To actually point the yes. camera at real stuff that's out there, but not describe it all, not not tell the story, open the viewer up to possibilities. Um, it's quite difficult to do, but there's one picture that I've got up on social media, which is which is looks pretty mundane. It's the side of a pickup truck with two pair of boots on the ground and yep. one tire. And you look at it and you think, well, hang on, where did the guys go that wore the boots? Was mm-hmm. there some was there some space vehicle that sucked them up into the sky or something? So that that that's based on that idea of of, of open endedness of, of of letting the viewer uh, construct meaning. And you and, and I don't really have a, a meaning that you're supposed to get. Um, it's not didactic in that way. Right. Um, I, I, I create. I'm crea- trying to create pictures where there's a, a, a variety of possible meanings, and the viewer can play with them. I just I just pitched for a grant um, by the National Association of Visual Arts in Australia that does offer grants to artists in various media, and and this this project that I pitched for. The, one of the core elements was that you had to have a high level of audience involvement. So I thought, well, how how can I involve my audience in prints of still you know still images? And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, well, uh, I, I don't I don't want to do a performance thing. I'm not in, into that stuff. I don't I'm not opposed to it, but I don't, this doesn't appeal to me personally. So I thought, what I'll do is I'll I'll I'll, I'll produce a floor sheet with all the images and I'll ask the audience to choose one image that they find moving, that, 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 that they find emotional and to tell me in one sentence why they find that image emotional. And then I'll judge them at the end and I'll offer three online courses with me, uh, uh, photography courses to the winner. Mm-hmm. So, so I kind of push engagement in the sense that I've given, I've given the audience a task so they're going to spend a little more time with my pictures than they might otherwise have done um, in order to be eligible for this for this contest because, you know, ph- photography is all around us. There's images everywhere. I don't. I think we're we're all subject living in big cities to something like five or ten thousand images a day, and just in the course of us moving around, watching TV, scanning social media, whatever. Mm-hmm. So. So the question of, of, of people's willingness to contemplation, that we're witnessing the death of contemplation in a way. Uh, and so us photographers have to be challenged by that. We can't, we can't blame the audience if they're not paying attention. It's up to our job, it's up to us to create images that bring them back and that, and that give them something to think about and to explore um, and to get involved with. 
it's a big challenge, I think, for anybody working in the representational field at the moment to create images that do hold audience for more than a couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about as you're explaining this is that you, you are slightly repositioning the, the notion of narrative. We talk about narrative photography and the, the majority of the time we're talking about what's happening in the frame, maybe slightly outside the frame. You seem to be positing a kind of narrative that's more in the viewer's uh, heart and mind than what's actually in the image to create a, a story. Uh, from their the, the prompt of the image and then their own history and psychology. Would that be a fair way to, uh, to describe it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've, I've, being a copywriter and being an, a, a sort of um, obsessive wordsmith, if you'll pardon the pun, given that my name is also <laughs> Smith, um, I've, I've come up. I've come up with a. I've come up with a line that summarizes this this type of photography that I'm trying to do, and I'm hoping that it. It inspires others to interpret it in their own way. And that is, see what's there, feel what isn't. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. So, therefore, therefore, you, you, you're just as interested in what's outside the frame, what may have taken place a little before the shot or what could, be, could take place after the shot or what else the shot might mean. When, when you're making the image, you, you try and think of what's not there as well as what's there. Mm-hmm. You, with a couple exceptions, you know, like, you know, there's an image that you've got, you know, called Half a Painter, which um, speaks directly to what we're talking about now. But with, with only a few exceptions, your images are almost entirely without people. Um, and and yeah. from you know, watching your, the videos and stuff, this is a choice. This is not just, you know, or, you know, this happens to be the good ones. This is intentional on your part. Why is that? Yeah, because everyone else shoots them. Why should I join the queue? <laughs> Seriously, and I don't, I don't, I don't think that photographs of people's faces are necessarily very different from each other. Okay, so so an old gnarled face is an old gnarled face, and it's not a young face. But so what? Uh, a young face is a young face. A baby's a baby. I mean, we've seen every single aspect of human personality and character, and because media is now global. We've seen the faces of people in many cultures, many places we've never visited. So, so I don't, I don't see any need to include people. I do include them sometimes, but kind of as right. furniture, you know, as, as just as props in a sense. But, but it's not an anti-humanist stance because um, uh, it's it's basically looking at people through a prism. Because everything mm-hmm. I photograph was made by people. It was constructed by per- people, by tradespeople. It was used. It's used by people who live in them, uh, or the structures. Uh, it, it's they're broken. They're 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 uh, repaired. They're um, damaged. They're repainted. And so, when you look at any images of the city, because that's the other thing I don't do is landscapes. I don't do country stuff. I don't. Nature can do whatever it does, but I'm interested in what people do. In mm-hmm. fact, so 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 I'm looking at people through through the um, the eyes of the stuff that we make and live in. So I think my pictures are just as much about people as as if uh, as if I were shooting the people themselves. Yeah, I mean, you you've said that you know take your pictures uh, are talking about people indirectly. You know, mm. they, they are evidence of of, of human activity yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But but you say things represent human emotions. And so if, if I'm looking at, and I'm just looking at your website right now, if I'm looking at an image like Slatted Chair Speaks, which is an image I, I absolutely adore, um, how is that representative for you of, of human emotions? 
Well, the slatted chairs. One, one of the one of the rungs is uh, is not not straight, so right. some, some somebody is not bothered to straighten it up. And and let's face it, I think I think if you if you if you think about psychologists, psychologists will tell you that the, that the person the person with imperfections is more attractive to most of us than the person with perfect features that are balanced. The imperfection within within the perfect is what has a lure. We're not attracted to perfection, uh, and I think probably because we all realise underneath that none of us are perfect, mm -hmm. um, so why should we expect it? And it's those imperfections, it's those little quirks, it's those things that don't sort of work that get you. I mean, it's like sitting in a dentist's waiting room and there's a picture on the wall It's not straight. All I do is for the next 20 minutes <laughs> is try and straighten it in my mind. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's partly a distraction from the dentist drill approaching me at rapid speed. But, I mean, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, that, psychologists will tell you that the, that the uncompleted circle is more engaging than the yep. completed one. Absolutely. So it's those, it's those imperfections, it's those quirks, it's those odd things. I never photograph new, new constructions, uh, uh, you know, the sort of, global metropolis, the, the global shopping centre, they're all exactly the same and they don't interest me whatsoever. I'm interested in a bit of wear, a bit of quirkiness, a bit of funkiness, a bit of grunge. I'm not interested in rubbish or, you know, bomb sites, but I am interested in, 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 in the processes that objects go through uh, in our hands to give them character. Oh, I love that. So you're taking images of this process of uh, aging, basically. Yeah, what a brilliant way to go out. You, you, again, something else you said that struck me. You said that you hope your pictures have an emotional aftertaste. It was the aftertaste part of that quote that, that, that really struck me. And so is that just me walking out of, you know, my office having seen your pictures online or in a gallery or something? You know, I, I understand the emotional immediacy when I'm, you know, sitting in front of your image. Tell me about this idea of an aftertaste. Well, you know, if you expect people to buy your pictures, for example, so if you have shows and things, you put them up on the wall and you put a, you know, a serious price on them, not that I get thousands, but um, I... No, I don't get fifty bucks. Um, you you, ex you expect the buyer's got the right to expect that the picture will speak to them over time. Mm -hmm. The best shots are not those you get straight off. The best shots are those that that kind of worry you and get at you and pick at you, and you think, "Hang, hang on, what, what is that really about?" So, so you have to build mystery into your pictures. You have to you have to build longevity into them. You have to have subtleties and complexities and little little things that 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 the viewer can appreciate over time. You don't you don't just put everything in front of them, you know, like like uh, like a primary school student. You know, you, you you've got to um you gotta you've got to create complexity. I mean yeah. you, you want you wanna respect your audience and you wanna see them as complicated um people and and people open to subtlety. And so I suppose that's what I mean by aftertaste is that is it you know, you should be able to look, there's a uh, there's a book called Collecting Contemporary. It's an interesting book and it and it just interviews it's interviews and it's interviews with gallerists. Mm -hmm. and and collectors but no artists are included in the book oh my uh, yeah it's called it's called collecting contemporary you're supposed to 
put tack on art at the end yourself, but that's what it's about, contemporary art. Mm-hmm. And I know one of the one of the collectors said something I found quite profound, and, and he said that don't buy a picture unless you're willing for it to change your life. Uh, now that's a pretty tall order for us artists, but I mean it's an interesting, <laughs> interesting position. I suppose this guy's talking about paintings that he paints, pays millions for. So, but if you if you if you take the trickle down effect, um, you know we owe we owe it we owe it to the audience to challenge them. We owe it we owe it to the audience to to, to build a little bit of um, subtlety and mystery into our work if we want them to to, to believe us and to value us. Oh, that, that, yeah, absolutely. Let, let's switch to process for just a little bit. You say you don't hunt pictures, you let the pictures hunt you. Yeah, I suppose it's just playing with words, but, um, well, there, there, there's a, there's a, a writer um, who wrote a book called um, Street Photography from Arge to Cartier-Bresson, Clive Scott. And in this book, he just analyzes um, French street photography um, from the 1910s up to the 60s, and in it he says that that he says that he says the common the common belief is that photographers go out there hunting pictures, but they let hit pictures hunt them. Look, I don't go out there with an agenda. I think if you do, if you go out there with an agenda, I want to capture X or Y. You may get X or Y, but it's a pretty boring process. You you go out there with a complete blank mind. And allow the city to seduce you. You have to you have to allow the city to surprise you and seduce you, and you don't go out with an agenda and you come back with pictures that you didn't know you were going to get when you went out. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, the other thing is that that uh, I think we all have intentions when we press the button. So you've got, let's say you've got you've got a particular view in your frame, and uh, you think this might be an interesting picture. So you press the button. And then when you bring it back and look at it on your computer or before you do some post-production on it and put it out on social media and you think, hang on, that's not, that's not what I thought it was going to be. And I think you need to be loyal to the image as opposed to your intention. The point is, is it a good image irrespective of what you hoped it would be? And if it's a better image than you hoped it would be, to hell with it. Include it in your, in your work. <laughs> You know, well, well, mm-hmm. welcome, welcome the happy accident. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Now, so when, when you're out doing your work and, and something speaks to you, you, you're not a you know quick raise it to your eyes, shoot and move on. You, you, you take some time setting up the shot. No, I did. I was shooting on film until about four years ago with a tripod mm-hmm. and a medium format film camera. Once I found out that digital cameras will shoot up to 100,000 ISO, <laughs> I thought, why am I walking around with a bag with five lenses in it and a tripod over my shoulder in my 70s? Why am I doing this? I don't have to. Uh, it's just masochism. 
So I, I sold all my lenses and, uh, and I'm in the process of selling my cameras. And, um, and, and, and of course, what it has meant is that, you know, what everybody tells you, and they've been, they were telling me for 20 years before I switched, and that is that you can take quite a lot of pictures and then you can scrap the ones that don't work, um, mm-hmm. which I do now. I mean, I only, only put a percentage of my stuff up onto social media. I mean, a lot of stuff gets junked. But it's interesting talking about the process of taking pictures because strange you should mention that because you know as a as a photography teacher which I was for like fifteen years or so I don't teach directly now but I I, I mentor photographers and I curate shows and things but right um, on many occasions I thought now I'm standing in front of this situation with my camera and I figure there's a picture in it how do you communicate that. How do you communicate seeing pictures to students, photographers, people who want to develop their skills and have come along to do a course or what have you, without telling them, shoot this thing here? And I I figure you can't do it. I I figure you cannot teach how to see. It's impossible. I think you're born with with some ability to see and you either develop it by doing it or, or you don't. Uh, it's still a mystery to me as, as, as to actually how one arrives at the conclusion that there's a picture there in front of me. Now, when, when you say how to, when you say how to see, are you talking like rules of composition, or are you talking philosophy and aesthetics? No, I don't accept any rules of composition at all. Zero. I don't accept the rule of thirds. <laughs> none of them. I think it's all bullshit. Seriously, I don't accept any rules whatsoever. In fact, uh, that that French photographer, the guy that did the picture with the boy and the big loaf and the bottle of wine, remember the famous picture mm-hmm. from the fifties? Yep. I think his name is Duanu, Robert Duanu. I think his name is. He was asked. He was asked what makes a great picture by a journalist, and he said, "If I knew what makes a great picture, I'd do it every time." Yeah, not possible. It's not possible to establish any criteria whatsoever. Um, have you read? Um, the Roland Barth um, camera lucida. No, uh, in, in it, Roland Barth talks about two types of pictures. He talks about he talks about um, studium mm-hmm. and punctum. Two types of pictures. He says studium is the well composed, pleasant, attractive picture that does its job, and you forget about it about point two of a second later. And then there's punctum, which somehow or another, irrespective. of its composition, its subject matter, or anything, it somehow or another strikes you in the heart. And he said, that's the picture that's valuable. That's the great picture. And he he talked about he talked about his mum in this book. And he mum apparently died relatively young and he was very close to her and it was a huge shock to him. And he looked through all of her pictures that that, that, that he possessed about her and he found one of her at eleven and he said, this picture of her at 11 years of age epitomised my mum more than anything else that I was able to find in her archives. He said, there's no point in showing you because it's not your mum. Right. So, so that, that I think that's a really interesting interesting uh, uh, um, thing to think about when it, when it comes to so-called rules of composition, that the punctum, the picture that gets you, that strikes through all your defences, that somehow or another grabs you and holds you for a bit, doesn't necessarily conform to anything, you know. I I've got no money. I'm, I'm I live on the on the old age pension basically. I, I describe myself as a full time artist on a federal government grant. 
Uh, some people call it the pension, right? Um, so I can only afford one photographic book a year. Um, uh-huh. so, so I look for, through a few, uh, you know, because there's some great bookshops in Sydney, um, and I'll, I'll only buy a book if it gets if two or three images get their hooks into me like fish hooks. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just have to have that book uh, because two or three images have really held my attention and I have no idea why. No, I don't accept any rules at all. Okay. You, you, you have said that making and displaying images you, you find yourself equally excited by. Talk to me about the displaying side. What, what do you mean there? Oh, I mean, showing them in uh, either social media or in galleries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also putting them on your own wall. I think everybody that takes pictures, you know, when you're teaching photography, uh, um, you, you want to try and get people past just uploading them to social media because 99% of the pictures that people take, even photographic students that have paid you to help them develop their skills, don't get prints made. You have to put your pictures on on your wall, live with them, look at them over time. And, And if you do that, it does two things. First of all, it reinforces your own hope that you're an artist. Mm-hmm. And it can it convince it can convince you that you are one, um, and and it's also that's the end product of the process. If you stop halfway, you know it's like foreplay. You know it's it's not the whole deal. <laughs> You've got to have the print up there. You've got to be able to see this thing over time. And we don't make them to disappear in a second and a half. We make them because we're hoping they'll last. And so, if if social media is your only is your only objective, then and it's a shallow objective. I I agree with you a hundred percent. And one of the things I fear is is that um, you and I and others, you know, of, of a certain age, remember those gallery experiences or those magazine experiences. And I think people under the age of I mean, probably twenty five now, the cell phone is 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 the benchmark. Um, and, and I'm wondering if, if there isn't a really kind of tragic sea change coming up, but we can fight against it. We, we can see, you know, you know, rage against the machine a little bit. Tell, tell me about this short film you've got on your website, the, the Noir Streets uh, deal, just, just with the music behind it. Tell me what's going on there. That was done a while ago. Yeah, that was done for us uh, after my um, degree on um, Longing in the City. It's just to get it out there and um, and to get people looking at it, and hopefully, um, it's 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 all night stuff. I think in that in that mm-hmm. particular um, video, there's a few there's a few influences uh, that are important to me in that in that period. Uh, one is a German photographer who teaches at the Royal College of Art in London called Ruth Lees Luxemburg. She's worth looking up if you like night photography. She uses a medium format film camera and uh, photographs on the streets of London at night, basically, with no people. Oh, mm-hmm. Root Blees Luxembourg, spelled R U T, Root Blees, B L W S. Then okay. there's Todd Hedo. There's Todd Hedo, an American that you might have seen. His, his mm-hmm. work is mostly at night, uh, again, with no people. Yeah. It strikes me as being very much in your philosophy of being open-ended, of being contemplative, um, of, of really suggesting narratives more than delivering narratives. I think I've done that. I think I've done that without being highly conscious of it for quite a long time. I think I've just recently been able to synthesize that 
in this line, uh, see what's there, feel what isn't. Uh, I've spent mm-hmm. years thinking thinking about thinking about how to encapsulate that, uh, and I don't claim it's a new idea. I, I, but I do claim that I've, how shall I say, invented a handle for it. Um, mm-hmm. One of the one of the one of the in, uh, the influences for this is a Belgian surrealist called Paul Nuge, N-O-U-G-E. He did a series called The Treachery of Images. He was a friend of um, René Magritte, you know, the famous guy that did This Is Not A Pipe. Right. And Paul Nuge has a picture, one of his pictures from this Treachery of Images series is a group of people formally dressed in suits, I think it's two blokes and a woman, and they're all bending over a table, a black and white shot, uh, obviously, in, in, in that period, 1930, looking at something. We don't know what they're looking at. There's nothing there, actually, um, just the table. But they're, they're appearing intently at this whatever. And the title is The Birth of an Object. There is no object <laughs> yep. being born. Oh. It's an amazing photograph, and I think it, it really uh, probably is the foundation for this thinking about, you know, um, see what's there, feel what's not. Uh, I think, I think, I think, I think Paul Nuge basically kicked off the idea, you know, um, nearly a hundred years ago. Oh man, I got to tell you, I, I do a lot of night photography myself. It, it mm-hmm. is appealing both as a practice, you know, to be out there at night. And, and I, I find it tremendously appealing uh, as a subject when I'm looking at, at the work of others. But it, it's a special sensitivity to, to see any landscape, urban or any other, um, in, in nighttime. And I think you, you've just absolutely nailed this one. This, this is compelling and, and, and important work. Thank you very much. I, I've enjoyed every minute of this, and, and especially you know, going back to that thing that is a button, um, I, you know, for me, that needed to be pushed, this notion of, of the relationship between anxiety and beauty, and I love your definition of that. Thank you, Lynn. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Uh, thanks, Scott. I appreciate uh, you spending the time with me, and I hope it was uh, fun and that the uh, uh, the people listening will uh, will enjoy it. And um, great, have a good day, mate. <laughs> Take care, man. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> bye bye. See ya. Okay. Bye bye. Frames, because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.